uh, just before we begin, uh, I, I used to not like readings that had lots of uh, complicated names in them. I would tune out. Um, and uh, I don't know if others are like that too. I actually now like them, um, but uh, just because it's fun to listen to people try to pronounce them. Uh, so well, well done, well done, Victoria, this morning. Um, uh, but something that's interesting about those uh, names that I was just thinking about and why I think it's actually helpful that they're in our readings and we pay attention to them and listen to them. It's not that you have to memorize those names and know who the rulers were, but it's, it's kind of the, it locates this in history. So it locates the, the story for us. Like, we think we don't really need that because we know, oh, it's in the Bible. Um, but think about it this way, that if I said to you, uh, you know, when John F. Kennedy was president of the, of the United States, um, you immediately are located in that time, right? Even if we, you weren't born then, um, you're still located in that time. You know what that is. But if I picked a year from one of the, how long was he president? Two, three years? Wasn't very long. Um, if I picked out one of the years, and I don't have them memorized, you wouldn't know for sure. Someone might know. Does someone know? 61, so 62. So if I said in 1962, there would be a whole bunch of people here that beforehand wouldn't have known, oh, that's when John F. Kennedy was president of the United States, right? So it actually, that's a better way of locating you in the story, um, having these names about these rulers. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today, but I just thought that's kind of interesting. Um, another thing that I'm not going to be talking about today is a, a sentence, because uh, we'll cover all the things I'm not going to speak about, um, is a sentence in here that I find a fascinating sentence, and it's that John the Baptist came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The reason I'm not going to talk about that today is because I'm going to talk about that next week. Um, so you can come back next week um, as we're going to talk about, well, what does that mean, a repentance for the forgiveness of sins? Here's what we are going to talk about today. We're actually going to talk about Isaiah chapter 40. Because all three Gospels, including this one, connect John the Baptist's message to something that it says in Isaiah 40, which we began our worship service with today. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Isaiah chapter 40 uh, marks a major shift in the book of Isaiah. You got the first 39 chapters, which most scholars will say is first Isaiah, even though it's not labeled that way. And then after starting in Isaiah 40 is second Isaiah. And some will argue as well that there's a third Isaiah uh, closer to the end. The reason why they say this is really second Isaiah is mainly because this section of Isaiah is um, directed to people in a totally different context and circumstance. So some scholars say actually different prophets wrote the book, um, that there was an early uh, Isaiah, and not that there was an actual second person named Isaiah, but that someone writing sort of in an Isaiah tradition wrote the next part. Other scholars say, no, it was all Isaiah, but they still say that Isaiah was addressing a different group of people in a different century even. Um, so, uh, so if he was being prophetic, he was just pronouncing what God wanted him to pronounce 
but he's still addressing a different group of people. So in essence, it, in some ways for us, it doesn't really matter whether there's two different people doing the addressing, but it's important for us to know that there's different people being addressed in different contexts. The context of 2nd Isaiah, beginning in Isaiah 40, is that God's people have experienced exile. They are, uh, they used to live in Jerusalem and Judea, and the Babylonians had come and invaded, and they'd taken uh, most of the people, in particular all of the elite, the governors and the rulers and the people who were the, the elite within the society had been taken away to Babylon. And that's where they were now. And Isaiah 40 is the opening part of the address to the exiles in Babylon. Now Isaiah 40 talks about something that Luke chose not to include in his quote. Because Luke quotes from Isaiah 40. And that thing that gets included is a highway. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The image that's given is an image of return from Babylon, right? So God is going to create a highway for us to walk across from Babylon back to our homeland. That's the image. Now, I think this is a great image for the church because it can feel sometimes like we are in exile. Now, what what is that feeling of exile about? I think it's a feeling that things used to be better before. We had a home before where we knew how things worked, but now we have a feeling of dislocation. Now, I've been hearing that everything was better in the church way back when, since the time I was about 16 years old. That's when I first started hearing that, uh, that things were better before in the church. That's 24 years ago now. Um, and when I was 16, I had no idea why anyone would ever bother looking back at the way things used to be uh, and long for that time. I didn't understand that at all. But I started to get it a few years ago. Um, because I'm, you know, not 16 anymore. Um, when I was in my late teens and my early 20s, I really loved the idea of the church as Christ and his people. And I loved doing things with the youth in particular. I loved going to retreats and conferences, getting involved, leading events, getting things done in the life of the church. I didn't always love the way the church was, but I did love the church as it was, if that makes any sense. And mostly, others, mostly adults, you know, 40 and over, that's me now, seem to talk about the glory days when there were hundreds of kids in the Sunday school. And it was as though they used to love the church, but didn't anymore. They lamented. They wondered, where have all the kids gone? But I was looking around, and I saw plenty of teenagers. It wasn't hundreds. But I thought it was plenty, and most of them were really excited about God and about being the church together. Now, here's my point in telling you this. It is actually helpful for us to relate to the exile, but only to a point. When I was in my early 20s, I wouldn't have related to anyone saying that the church was in exile. Why? Because I was not looking back on a better time. I was looking ahead to what might be possible. 
Now, I couldn't help but look ahead because I really didn't have a long past to look behind at, did I? It is helpful for us to relate to exile, but I think only in this way. We relate to it in the hope that it will come to an end. Either for us or for those who will come after us. We relate to it with patient endurance, believing that we may in fact be on the cusp of God doing something significant to bring us out of exile. That's how we ought to relate to exile. It's okay to be honest and say we think we might be in one but we need to relate to it with the hope that God will bring us out of one. And as is evidenced in the Old Testament, God's plan was not to simply rebuild what was there before the Babylonian exile. That was not God's plan. It was to rebuild something even better. And ultimately, the true end of his people's exile wasn't even to be found in a homeland or a new temple or a rebuilding of Jerusalem. It was to be found in the person of God's own son, Jesus Christ. Now, the people in Babylon were not thinking, well, in 500 years, Jesus is going to be born, and isn't that going to be wonderful? They just wanted things back the way they were. That's what they were caring about. They just wanted to go home. But it was into that time that these words of Isaiah were spoken. Prepare a way through the wilderness. Mountains are going to be brought low. Valleys are going to be raised up. The rough places are going to be smoothed out. Now I want you to notice here that what Isaiah describes is well beyond human capability. The people in Babylon couldn't bring mountains down and couldn't raise valleys up. But it's easy for God. It's as easy for God as it was for me to just flatten out a little small hill of sand this morning. It's easy for God. The end of the exile will be miraculous, clearly not the doing of human beings. And notice how our reading ends, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. God's salvation of God's people. In other words, not them saving themselves. This is good news. If there's a rough road ahead for the church, God will take care of it. He's the one in charge. Yet Isaiah and John the Baptist both call for us to prepare. Well, what do they mean by prepare if we actually can't do it? If it needs a miracle and it's all God's activity, then what what does it mean to prepare? I think what he means by prepare is trust. Have faith. Place your faith in God and in nothing else. And actually, when you start getting deep into faith and start to really grasp what it means, I think we discover that, that, that doing that, that having faith in God, that he will deliver, that can actually be harder than having an action plan in place or a checklist in place and then working on that. There's all kinds of church leaders that are trying to find, well, what's the the magic answer? How do we attract kids or youth? Or what, what do we do for the church to grow? What do we put in place? It's actually a lot harder to say, well, we're going to trust in God for that. People would rather have the checklist. It can be hard to simply trust in God for our future. Now, the people in Babylon, they had the prophecies of Isaiah 40. And the people in Luke's gospel, they had John the Baptist. We don't have that. 
for our time and place? Or do we? When the Gospel writers wrote about John the Baptist, they drew on Isaiah. That was 500 years earlier. From Isaiah, 2nd Isaiah, the Babylonian exile to the coming of Jesus. It's about 500 years. And they didn't draw on that as a way of thinking about, oh, if only we could go to a, back to a better time when we came out of exile and God rebuilt Jerusalem. Wasn't that great? If only we could just go back to that. They, they did not think that way at all. Instead, they looked back on that time and said, if God saved our ancestors and God pulled them out of exile, imagine what God can do now. And look, John the Baptist said, God is about to save us in the same way, but in an even greater way, really. Our spiritual exile is now over with the Messiah's coming. We get concerned about things like the decline of church attendance and the spiritual depression that is a grip on the Western world, and we get really concerned about a world that's in chaos. But rarely do we look over the last few hundred years at the amazing revival of the Holy Spirit that has been taking place. Because we have really short-term minds. In Jesus' time, in John the Baptist's time, they had no problem looking back 500 years and saying, look what God did 500 years ago, that's what God can do today. We never do that. About 500 years ago, God used someone named Martin Luther. And how many of us are walking around when we're talking about, oh, you know, the church is in decline. The church has been in only decline for, in North America for maybe you know, 40, 50, 60 years. That's not very long. God used Martin Luther to start a renewal that would spread throughout the whole world. Uh, then, but it, you can't, it, there's so much that's happened since then. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, George Whitefield, and the revivals that gave rise to Methodism and then to the, what was called the Great Awakening in the United States. How many have even heard about the Great Awakening in the United States? It's an unbelievable time of spiritual renewal, which, depending on who you talk to, it took place in three phases, starting in the early 18th century to the late 19th century. We don't really learn about this in our history classes in school. Listen to that again. It took place over 150 years. Early 18th century, the late 19th century. A religious movement in the United States and the UK. And that's before Pentecostalism even existed. Because that started only about 100 years ago. And Pentecostalism is one of the fastest growing global religious movements in all of history. We only need to look at the global south, Africa, Asia, Latin America, South America, to see the continued growth and fervor of the followers of Jesus Christ. The Washington Post ran a story in May 2015 called, Think Christianity is Dying? No, Christianity is Shifting Dramatically. And here's just one quote from that article. Over the past 100 years, Christians grew from less than 10% of Africa's population to its nearly 500 million today. 
One out of every four Christians in the world presently is an African. And the Pew Research Center estimates that it will grow to 40% by 2030. So we can complain about our church decline or our struggles, but someone probably needs to stand up and say, well, just look at what God is doing. God is acting, and there are plenty of places where people are actively participating in the church and in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It is happening. But what about us in Winnipeg? Maybe we're in exile. And what about that? What about being in exile and the uncertainty that that brings? Well, I think the highway through the desert is a great image for us as a congregation. Uh, St. Andrews, so one of our two congregations that joined together, St. Andrews had a, a saying or kind of a mission statement. What was it? Yeah, there you go. Join us on a journey of faith. Now, did anyone at St. Andrews, when that was picked, did anyone at St. Andrews know what that journey would be? <laughs> would we predict this? No. No idea, right? We might have thought we had some idea. Did anyone have a full grasp of the magnitude of the last word in that statement? Faith. It takes some faith to walk the road that that congregation walked and continues to walk. Joining two churches together, it's not the easiest thing. And that's just kind of the, the, the tip of St. Andrews, right? I think that highway through the desert is a great image. Because only God can prepare that. Only God can do that. It's up to us to walk it, though. We need to pray. We need to continue to listen for what God wants. We might ask, what is the road for us? We can ask that, but we need to remember that that is a question to ask God. What's next for us as a congregation? I hope it's more prayer I, th I hope it's more listening to God and acting on what we hear. God has to be the one continuing to lead. It will be God's way. It must always be God's plan. Isaiah and John both said, get ready, prepare. God is about to do something great. And what we must take from this is that God is the primary actor in those contexts. And this is what we must apply to our lives and our congregation. That God is the primary one at work. And every once in a while, God will take some major action. We must listen for his voice. And we must be ready in faith. Amen.